0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. This is Donald Meisel speaking, minister and forum moderator. Welcome to the 63rd Town Hall Forum, dedicated as was the first and each that followed to looking at key issues in ethical perspective, and that with the aid of voices with a conscience who have been invited to this podium. The voice being heard today is that of Studs Terkel. For decades, his voice has been an everyday staple for Chicago radio listeners. As a erudite but gentle talk show host, He has achieved nearly legendary status in the Chicago area and wherever his program is heard. But it is as an oral historian that Turkle has achieved worldwide recognition. Employing a tape recorder and insatiable curiosity, Turkle succeeds in getting everyday people to record their deepest thoughts about themselves and their world. He then edits the material with keen sensitivity. His first such effort appeared in 1966, titled Division Street, America. It chronicled the ferment that characterized American society during the 1960s. That work was followed by Hard Times, An Oral History of the Great Depression, 1970. And then in 1974, Working, subtitled People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about it. Turkle's 1986 volume, The Good War, An Oral History of World War II, won him the Pulitzer Prize. His most recent offering is The Great Divide Second Thoughts on the American Dream, 1988. I also understand that he has written the introduction to the 50th anniversary edition of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, which anniversary is tomorrow, no less. Born in 1912, Studs Terkel grew up in Chicago, graduated from the University of Chicago in 1932, and from the Chicago Law School in 1934. He has acted in radio soap operas, been a disc jockey, a sports commentator, a TV MC, and has traveled all over the world doing on-the-spot interviews. Mr. Turkle, while you were being interviewed over the radio earlier today, you indicated that what you would be saying here today could best be described as a jazz sermon. Well... If you can put the two faces of America to music, we're ready to dance in the aisles. We're ready for you in talking about greed in America, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) Studs Terkel, welcome.
1: I was thinking of Don Meisel's very gracious introduction. Here I am in a respected church. I have the pulpit, scriptures before me. You are my captive congregation. And when it's over, we shall pass the collection plate. (laughs) How can I miss? The first time I was in Minneapolis, I was an actor in a play called Detective Story with Chester Morris. Some of you my contemporary recognized the name Chester Morris, Boston Blackie. My memory of Minneapolis then was mostly that of taste. I had smorgasbord on Sunday at the Leamington Hotel, and I still taste the herring. (laughs) But it was 1950, interesting year, 50-51, and Joe McCarthy was on the wing. And I was thinking, then if I spoke, with an audience, or to an audience, with a police chief present, I'd have worried. But in this instance, the police chief you've had for several memorable years is somewhat different. You've had a literate police chief. <laughs> and Tony Boza right there with Eric. <clears throat> and more important than that, a humane police chief. Now, who ever heard of a police chief arresting his wife five times? (laughs) I come from Chicago, and I ought to know. I was thinking about, uh, Don Meisel mentioned tomorrow is the anniversary of the publication of the great American novel, The Grapes of Wrath. And I start thinking how contemporary that book is. How that book is of 1988, 1989, as well as 19... 39 because while working on the great divide i was passing through minnesota towns and iowa rural communities and dakotas and there they were the boarded up stores the deserted streets and of course the family farmers suffering indeed there was carol Niermeyer, some 45 miles outside des moines fourth generation he spoke just like muley graves and grapes of wrath he spoke of, this is my land, I worked here, my folks worked here, they died here, and now a piece of paper's taken it away. The exact words Steinbeck used. And we start thinking of today, then, and then. We start thinking of two administrations, because then there was something called the New Deal. It had many flaws, it was flawed in many ways, but there was in Washington an interest in the small farmer. An interest in the working man, an interest in the small businessman. Out of it came big government, of which we hear so much. We know that bureaucracy overdone is not very good, but it was big government, the very thing that saved the butts of those who were first to condemn it, that saved the family farmer to a great extent. Not fully. We know it was World War II that ended the Depression, but nonetheless, the New Deal with the resettlement administration, with the FSA, with all its works, with all the flaws, played a tremendous role in saving only lives but the self-esteem of millions. In contrast, with the family farmer today speaking of Washington of the last eight years of Ronald Reagan, and he speaks with such sense of impotence and rage, but the rage of not being able to do anything about it and not being heard. And that's what we face today, in a sense. I'm thinking of two faces. Don said, when I say a jazz sermon, what I mean is I improvise a great deal. (laughs) There'll be a beginning, a middle, and an end, but there'll be what you call jazz solo breaks in between. (laughs) And you you, you realize there'll be questions too later on. Look for the questions. Uh, This is, assume then I'm in a black church, I'm a preacher, and it's something called call and response. When you've heard Martin Luther King, or other of the great preachers, it's almost a singing tone that I can't ever achieve, but the words become song, and the audience responds. You've heard that, call and response. In our case, it's also the basis of jazz, by the way, but in our case, it'll be the questions that you ask later on, and if I don't know the answer, I'm an old time disc jockey, I'll fake it. But the answers are round and about. We're thinking of uh, two faces. Let me read just one little piece. I can't help but want to read one little piece of Grapes of Wrath, this one passage. You recall the story of the Jode family, Tom Jode and Ma Jode on the way to California, the land of milk and honey, with millions of other families, Okies and Arkies on Highway 66, crossing the great American desert. It's that tremendous journey to California, which is not the land of milk and honey. And Tom, who's on parole because of a scrape or a tavern fight, kills a deputy because the deputy in that moment had killed his friend Preacher Casey. Preacher Casey has this vision of a world of community, of the human spirit, all one. And when Preacher is killed by the deputy, Tom in raging grief kills the deputy and has to run away. And he's saying goodbye to his mother, Ma Joad. And she says, well, Tom, how will I know what's going to happen to you? You know, how how will I know if, if you're hurt or if you're killed? I won't know it. And he says, it don't matter, Ma. Maybe like Casey says, a fella ain't got a soul of his own, only piece of a big one. And then it don't matter. Then I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up on a guy, I'll be there. If Casey knowed, why, I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad, and I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and no supper's ready, and when our folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses they build, why, I'll be there. And I thought, thinking 1939, who read that and would deeply moved, played a tremendous role in what the government did. This book that he wrote, by, he wrote, by the way, with the aid of the government. A friend of mine, Beanie Baldwin, who was assistant to Henry Wallace, secretary of agriculture, met with Steinbeck. He I want somebody to lead me around, somebody who knows his way, picking stuff, a man named Tom Collins. And so he worked, in a sense, subsidized by the government to do this book. And today, There are some literary mandarins who read this and call it old hat and sentimental. I start thinking, what's this country all about? Now it's on the other face, the other face is an acquaintance of mine, a minor syndicate tiger in Chicago. I call him Doc Graham. Since then, he's gone to the great beyond where all the Capone boys go. And so, uh, Doc Graham tells what it's about as he sees it. You just heard Tom Joad's vision. Casey's vision, expressed by Tom Jode. Now here's the other face, and Doc, you understand, says it very plainly and simply. And he says, Doc, by the way, spoke a certain language, half Damon Runyon, half McCauber. And so the words are kind of fancy, out of context. He says, talking about the Depression, the same time that Tom Jode was talking about. I was a caged panther, it was a jungle. Survival was the law of the land. I watched so many of my partners fall along the way. I decided the modus operandi was bad. Uh, he was the word modus operandi. He's friend of that. Unavailing, non-productive. After spending ten Saturday nights in jail, right after the other, I changed my modus operandi. And he goes on. I'd see this fellow liquidated, this fellow disposed of. Red McLaughlin had a reputation of being the toughest guy in Chicago, and when you've seen Red run out of the drainage canal, you realize Red's modus operandi was unavailing. And that's the way in which a kid, uh, Doc Graham, spoke. Now there's a contrast. See, Doc Graham worked for Al Capone and Bugs Moran, two rival gangs, and they battled for Turf. They were known as entrepreneurs. We think of the free, they were very imaginative entrepreneurs. When Al Capone attended baseball games, the crowd stood up and cheered. because in a sense, he was their hero, representing true entrepreneurialism. Something Ronald Reagan never dreamed of, but envisioned, you see. And so he would, uh, uh, Gabby Hartnett, manager of the Cubs, would ask for his autograph. And Al was very gracious. He'd ask Gabby for his autograph. But there were other entrepreneurs whose names and faces we knew. And that's different between then and now. When you mentioned the name John D. Rockefeller, you saw the face. You knew about the Ludlow massacre. You knew how he accumulated stuff, but you saw a cadaverous face that was John D. You could not mistake it. When you evoked the name of J.P. Morgan, you saw the porcine features. You saw it. You could not mistake him you saw faces. When you saw it, when the name Andrew Carnegie was evoked, you saw the and little features. They had faces. Today, the entrepreneurial ones, the big boys that Ralph Nader talks about have no faces. We don't know the face or the name of the head of General Electric or General Motors. So you see, the difference is the impersonality of it today. The difference is they're called number crunchers. And in some way, they become the heroes of the new young masters of business administration. Now, this is one face of America. And so we do recognize the face of Ivan Bosky because we saw him on front pages and on TV. He made a great mistake. The mistake was being caught. He was too crude, but he was cheered by the students just as then they were cheering Al Capone. But there was a sort of humor then, a wry approach to it that is lacking today. Now, if I point out the young today as being MBAs, that's not the truth. We hear about the yuppie generation. The yuppies are a minority of today's young. They're the ones most advertised, the ones most known because they have the buck in the pocket. So every TV commercial you see aimed at the young is aimed at them, but the great many of the young today. The overwhelming majority are lost, bewildered, and seeking. And I sense a sea change for the better, not because of Bush, despite him. The sea change is something else. The sea change is that the young teacher of journalism at Northwestern says, for the first time in 10 years, students didn't ask how much money I made. They asked about journalistic ethics. There's a school called Humboldt State in Northern California and Humboldt State, there's a pledge taken by the students. Not all take it, but a great many graduates take the pledge. It's a voluntary pledge, of course, but a simple one. I will not take a job that endangers our environment in any way demeans the human species. That is happening. Now it's true, they're a minority, but since when was it a majority in the beginning? The Vietnam War protests began with a minority. Those kids were beaten up by the jocks on the campus who later on joined them when it hit them. The civil rights movement began as a minority movement. Everything begins. Remember the play by Henrik Ibsen, Enemy of the People? The quite remarkable play that is so timely now. It's about a town in Norway that is a spa. The source of income is the health spa, and people come, tourists come, uh, for health reasons. The doctor of the town, its most respected and distinguished citizen, Dr. Stockman, discovers the spa is poisoned, and he announces it and advertises it, and the people run the town. The town's people are furious with him. They stole his house because he's wrecking their source of income, they say, no matter what the end result might be. And Dr. Stockman gets out and he addresses them. They say, we're the majority and you've overridden the will of the majority by embarrassing us. He's since one of the majority always right. Was it right that day at Calvary? Did Christ have a majority with him in Roman Empire days? Or were they mocked and scorned as subversives? Which they were, of course. Was it a majority when Galileo said the world is not flat but round? He was mocked and scorned and throughout he points out it was always something, if I could be scriptural for a moment since I'm here, a prophetic minority. It always has been that, but it's touching on something that everybody... People ask me, who are the kind of people that you have in your book? They seem quite unusual. I say, they're ordinary people, but they're not ordinary. It's generally somebody on that block, whom everyone else points to, could be the housewife, you ought to go see Florence. Why should I see Florence? Well, Florence is a little different. You mean she's different? No, she's like us. She comes from our background, but Florence, little, some call her flaky, but she's not. Florence somehow is able to articulate what the others may feel but can't say. Florence has an insight that happens, that the others may not have, but she's able to express what they feel. She is part of what I'd call the prophetic minority, but she's on every block, in any town, anywhere in this country. I suggest anywhere in the world. And so to me, the important thing, see I'm gonna look at my time because I get lost since I'm improvising right now. This is jazz, see. I've just done my solo break and I want to get back to the to theme. It's theme and variations is what it is, see. I want to just check the time here. So we got, oh, we got to lose 10 minutes yet, don't we? and then we'll have questions, which I like. I like questions very much. But the prophetic minority is always there. Basically, it speaks for a majority feeling that they can't express. Now, one of the aspects of today that most disturbs me, by the situation I find very fluid, it's not all bleak at all. I sent the sea change, so the situation as during world war ii before the normandy invasion the phrase used was situation fluid and it's situation fluid at this moment but there is one thing the great divide is the book i have put together the great divide of course is one that separates haves from have nots wider than ever the have somewhat one day might be joining the have nots the great divide is race but the biggest divide is the young and the past, the lack of sense of past, the lack of sense of history through no fault of theirs. There is no yesterday and thus politicians able to get away with outrageous comments and pronunciamentos without reference to past. And so for example, I seek a young middle management phrase they use as management. He's about 23, 24. He loathes labor unions. I ask him why. He's their special interest. He got the phrase special interest. Labor is a special interest. Women's movement, special interests. Black movement, special interests. Gay, lesbian movement, special interests. But corporations are not special interests. You know, the National Rifle Association is not a special interest. You're not a card carrying member of a corporation. You're not a card carrying member of the NRA. It's this marvelous double standard that, of course, the double standard, that completely eluded poor, pathetic Dukakis. When he was cornered, cornered, when he was challenged by Bush, what an obvious moment to demolish Bush and all that he represented in language. There's a perversion of the American language. All he had to say is, you call me a card-carrying liberal as though it's a pejorative phrase. You're against perversion, Mr. Bush. Well, of course I'm against perversion. Why do you pervert the American language? Here's a dictionary, any dictionary. Webster's, Random House, Oxford, that two main definitions to liberal. One, and this is the caucus now talking to millions. One, the word is generous. You mean we're a mean-spirited people? Aren't we proud of the generous-heartedness of us? Second definition, more important. Liberal, tolerant of the opinion of others. Are you implying we should be totalitarian and harbor no dissent? Isn't one of our great brags, where else but in U.S. can you speak your mind no matter what opinion you express? He didn't. He said, I'm not really. See, that then and that is what we're talking about. It happens in language as well as in thought. And so something happens that I call shamelessness. Coming back to labor, the 22-year-old kid who hates labor. I said, how many hours a day do you work? He's eight hours a day. I didn't have the heart to ask him how the eight-hour day came to be. <laughs> that in 1886, seven guys were hanged in Chicago fighting for the eight-hour day. Haymarket, minimum wage. Oh, my, again, my variation of the theme. Imagine the pettiness of this administration fighting to stop for 30 cents difference. They'll veto it, he says. But minimum wage, I asked the kid, how many guys were blacklisted and women? How many heads were busting and lines ruined, fighting for minimum wage back in the 30s? Not the slightest knowledge of past. Now here comes the shameful part or lack of shame. During the football players strike, remember the professional football players strike, and I'm not gonna talk about the salaries players make because the fans go to see the f- players play, not the owners play, but they favor the owners, the great many of the fans rather than the players. And our one TV program, if two scab teams were playing it was Denver versus Dallas. Naturally, if it were Vikings, I'd have given up. <laughs> I don't think Vikings would have done it. <laughs> and so they're playing a horrible game and the announcers say, look at that. And there in the stands on public TV, we saw the young yahoos, you know, the bare chested young men during cold days to show their Rambo and they held up a sign, and the sign was, We Love Our Scabs. That was the sign on TV, and the commentators made no comment about it, they, as though they were for it. Just Never in the history of labor busting, labor smashing, ever I remember anything like that. Scabs, even in the worst of times, always enter through the back door, always entered in shadows. Never up front is that. That's the other aspect, the shamelessness, because... There is no past, there is no. There is this lack of history. At the same time, I'm gonna end this now because I, I wanna to get to those questions. At the same, I run into Peggy Terry, I run into Nancy Jefferson, I run into hundreds of people like Gaynelle Begley. I notice these are all middle-aged women I'm mentioning, but there's so much in the middle of it too. This is Peggy talking. Peggy, I think of her because the Grapes of Wrath. Peggy had fifth grade education, went through the Depression, walked the road with a young husband, picked fruit, did everything. She began as a racist, wound up as Peggy, quite remarkable spokesperson for the Appalachian people of Chicago. She says, I'm full of dreams, studs. A million of my dreams are gigantic. This is a time way back when Japanese farmers were on TV fighting to stop an airport, and I felt I was one of them. I said, right on. And I think of all the races of people I want to be friends with me. She said, I wish they'd hurry up with Esperanto because I want to get Esperanto spoken. She said, the reason I have so much hope, and this is Peggy talking about her past, I know darn well if I could start up the ignoramus I was not knowing anything. Anybody's capable of finding out. The same darn things, it's no big secret. Just something has to touch you and something you realize what a big world this is. Oh, what a small one and you just want to know what it's all about. And Gaynelle Begley, ghost town, Blackie, Kentucky, the strip miners are killing the town. She and her husband Joe have this general store sitting out front and you see the bulldozers at work and Gaynelle is talking above the noise. she says, she, she likes Edna St. Vincent Millay out of nowhere. She says, there's a Millay verse that she likes. It goes this way, Stud. She says, all I could see from where I stood, were three long mountains and a wood. I turned and looked another way and saw three islands in a bay. A man was standing in Capri. He moved his eyes and looked at me. And then she stopped, you know something such is she, Edna St. Vincent Millay. You know, she saw over the hills to the rest of the world. It just touched me early, early, and made me think I was kin kin to the world. That's exactly what Tom Jude was telling his mother, the lesson he learned from Preacher Casey. The opposite of, of Doc Graham and of the Predators, the robber barons, the two faces of the country. Which one do we favor? I'll close before my benediction, which I've stolen from William Sloan Coffin Jr. More of that in a moment. Nancy Jefferson, a black woman in Chicago who was a leader of a community, She says, down in the country, she came from Tennessee, fathered a lot of kids, he was a sharecropper. Down in the country, we used to ring the bell if there was trouble, or we'd ring it for dinner. Used to pull this rope. Sometimes, if it was cold, you'd keep pulling and keep pulling the bell. You'd think you'd never hear a sound. And maybe by the time your hands got raw almost, you'd hear a little tinkling of the bell. That's just the way I visualize the community. Is We all keep pulling the bell, our hands are getting raw, but you begin to hear that little tinkling. It does give you some hope that after a while, the bell's gonna ring. We gotta do it, we must do it. Even if we're the only one, my father said, if you're the only one in the world doing it, you must do it. We gotta keep on pulling that bell, And as a phrase used by a Chicano woman who works with Cesar Chavez, Jesse De La Cruz, Fresno, California. She said, we have a phrase in Spanish, and I'm going to misquote it badly. It goes, la esperanta muera la ultimo. Hope dies last. And I got a... Now, William Sloan Coffin was the chaplain at Yale. He's now the national president of Sane Frese. When chaplain at Yale, during the Vietnam War, offered an invocation, I says, Bill, I'm going to steal it from you, and it's my benediction in Minneapolis. And it goes this way. Oh Lord, may those who go forth from this college, or I should say from this chapel, have the wisdom and the courage to face the challenge, who are not afraid to challenge society's values that demean, trivialize, and separate us one from the other, who have a lover's quarrel with the world, not for what it is, but what it still can be, a willing to risk something big for something good. Oh, Lord, take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. Amen.
0: Mr. Turkle, we lament with you the loss of the sense of history. By the same token, I can assure you that we here today, tomorrow will remember and tomorrow and tomorrow that we were with you here today. Let me now turn to the radio audience and say a word to them while those of you here uh, who must leave uh, do so. Let me remind the radio audience that you have been listening for the last half hour to Studs Terkel, Chicago-based radio talk show host, oral historian, grassroots philosopher, astute observer of American life. We will be hearing more from him in a few moments. Our co-host, co-sponsor today is AT&T, and we thank them for their grand help in getting Mr. Turkle to town with us today. We offer those in the radio audience an opportunity to submit questions along with those who are in the live audience. If you wish to pose a question, and we'll try to find time to to air it, our phone number is 332-3421. 332-3421. Well, we've heard the call and we indicated that the response could come from the audience. So Mr. Turkle, would you return to the podium and let's uh, get on with it. Uh, While the questions are being collected uh, and brought forward, uh, not only is tomorrow the 50th anniversary of the publication of Grapes of Wrath, but I understand today is the hundredth birthday of Charles
1: Chaplin. How about that? What do you think of Charlie Chaplin?
0: <laughs>
1: That's a good course. Who is the man who you would call the consummate artist of film? The man who made film what it is. There's one person only, Charlie Chaplin. There was a phrase written about him long ago by an admirer of his in Theatre Arts magazine, or oh, some fifty years ago. It's called Charlie Makes the Whole Shoe. He was the craftsman, the artist in the old time sense he did the whole thing he acted of course the tramp he wrote it he directed it he wrote the music he was so independent that's why the big boys hated him it wasn't sure he had a certain political philosophy as sure he had scandals attached to his life that wasn't it someone they could not dominate charlie chaplin to me of course i if the young if the young don't see Chaplin, there again is a tremendous loss. I, I don't think it matters what, what decade it would be in to see City Lights in that one moment of recognition when she touches the lapel, the blind girl, she's his Charlie, and he leaves. But it's dignity. When Charlie, who can top Charlie for dignity? When he's leaving at the very end and the girl obviously is beyond him, the blind girl whose sight he helps restore by raising the money, fighting all humorous ways, Two little street urchins pull his, his, his a hole in his pants, and they pull some of his underdrawers out. Charlie rushes after them, and he's hurt, and he takes that little piece of underwear, and he makes it his boutonniere. He puts it in his lapel. That's Charlie. Of course, he was the most, I suppose, there's no figure in contemporary life of the century whose face, image, better known than Charlie Chaplin, and rightfully so.
0: All right, next question. Thank you. Will the new daily be any different from the old daily administration in Chicago?
1: It will have to be. It cannot be the same. One big difference. I didn't vote for Rich, as you probably guessed, but that isn't the point. It's different. The plantation days are over. It's true, the movement, as it's called, took a beating, but it's not a step, it's a step back. But a small step back because before the civil rights movement and before the incredible election of Harold Washington I never dreamed in my lifetime we'd have a black mayor in Chicago some called Chicago Johannesburg on the lake it was so divided <laughs> still is to some extent but it cannot be the same unless he's completely a fool and tries to emulate what his father did He'll be beaten in two years, unless, but I assume he will not be. I assume there's some advice around and about. He will have to recognize the new voices. In the past, there were the overseers. There's still a few of them, black aldermen. Uh, And they were the overseers, as in slavery days, who would get the vote in. And so the black vote was automatically the machine vote ever since the 60s in Washington, no more. The very fact that a third party, independent party pulls Almost 500,000 votes in a city, 450,000 votes in itself as a movement. No, it can't be the same.
0: A related question, perhaps. You and Saul Bellow both have a remarkably strong bond with the city of Chicago. Could you tell us a little more about this relationship and your fascination with this city?
1: Well, uh, Saul Bellow and I disagree on a few things, I'm sure. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the fascination of Chicago for me came when I was a kid. I came to New York as a little kid, eight years old. My mother had the rooming house and then a hotel, a men's hotel, but a great role in my life. I lost my asthma in Chicago. <laughs> I know, but I did. I had asthma and suddenly I find these, this city, this huge city, city of hands. You know, hands is an old time word for working people. 50 hands want, especially a rural word or a gang, street gang. I mean, building gang word, hands. Chicago City of Hands was a blue collar city primarily. That is, the three story cities are called New York, New Orleans, San Francisco. I don't know what's so storied about them, but they call that. But Chicago didn't have those graces they're reputed to have had. It's the city Sandberg was right. It's no longer that. Name. It was the hog butcher of the world, stacker of wheat, center railroads. The skyscraper came from Chicago. I think it's the muscularity of the city, but mostly its openness. It's also. No more corrupt than other cities. It's maybe the most theatrically corrupt, you see. Uh, it, it's the big daddy of corrupt cities. Now the respectables of Chicago when traveling, someone automatically says, boom, boom, Chicago. That is the work of Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson and Warner Brothers. You know. But the fact is that respectable is not at all offended because that respectable's life is made a little more colorful even in a surrogate manner as a result. But uh, that's why I like Chicago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is the greed of the present any different from the greed of the past?
1: That's a good question. No, greed is not different. Greed is greed, but the difference I think lies in the molders of opinion, the power boys, and the administra- we, we it is a democracy. We do elect people to office, high office and local office, and very often it is determined and I think what's happened during the Cold War days, we have to discuss that. The role the Cold War has played in almost everything. When sweetheart arrangements with the between labor and the big boys, when more and more stuff was offered to Pentagon and those contractors and less and less for human needs, the answer is, you gotta stop them. Along comes a guy named Mikhail Gorbachev and pulls a dirty, filthy trick on us what did he do? He deprived us of our enemy. We've got to find, now the boys at the Pentagon have got to find an enemy. Libya's too small, Gaddafi's too crazy. We found one, Grenada. <laughs> and you see, what see I heard... See, when i first heard and here's the part that's sad you know there's a cold war effect on all of us the daily daily litany of the dangers when i heard that we're invading grenade i thought it's the end of reagan he'd be laughed off the screen instead more popular than ever as popular as as maggie thatcher and falklands and so what happened is this we're walking down the street with a slight bloody nose we're the big boys we're rambo Walking with the bloody nose, little guys in black pajamas gave us a bloody nose, and they run back onto their porch. No one asked, what are we doing on the little guy's front porch to begin with? No one asked that. So, we're a pitiful, helpless giant, to use the words of a former president. And walking down the street, are they laughing at us? Suddenly we see Grenada. It's Muhammad Ali seeing Woody Allen, you see? <laughs> And so we go, so, Mom and the goes over Woody Allen. BAM! We beat him up. We won. Because otherwise, Grenada, you know, would have invaded us. You know that. Grenada's tremendous Luftwaffe would have knocked us off. <laughs> and so, come, that looks like it's come to an end. It seems that way, thanks to the developments out east. And as a result, this ever, if ever there were a chance for a communal world spirit, we have an enemy. And I could point to scripture right here, I got ecclesiastics, but where do I find about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The four horsemen of the apocalypse can be the enemy of us and the Soviet Union and China. Now, what are the four horsemen? Plague, we know about the plague. Famine, we know about famine. War, war itself, and pollution. Let's call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I've got scripture right here, and I can out literalize Jerry Falwell in doing it. <laughs> And so let's make the four horses of the apocalypse our enemy, our common enemy.
0: Would you comment on the Oliver North trial, its implications
1: and its (laughs) probable outcome? What can I say? I just did what had to be done. What can any patriotic young man do? And there was that John that been amazing the the astonishing support he received because the inquirers themselves weren't that great. He could have been nailed, you know that the backing, even the best of the lot. Mitchell was the best of the lot problem was good. And uh, Jack Brooks of Texas. But even so, there was a now as though we don't know as again we set a hide from ourselves as though we don't know his superiors and I mean his high superiors knew about of course they did we know that we know they did but there is he following orders how different yeah you imagine if he were there in place lieutenant Callie, he would have done differently I wonder I wonder I have an idea but that's so much for Oliver North I think Ali's May not be as popular today as he was a year ago. I'm not too sorry to say. But Ollie, for now, after all, the case is pending, can't talk about litigation.
0: Is your first name really Studs, uh, and what is its origin?
1: I knew that was going to come up. I wish it were what some think it was, but it ain't. Now there's a story, it was Studs Lonigan, the novel back in 1934. My name is Louie, L-O-U-I-S, but I liked that book by James T. Farrell so much I carried it with me all the time. They called me Studs, but story goes along with it. About when the book Working first came out, I spoke for the American Library Association. It was just the time that we're aware of censorship again. I got a letter from a librarian in Georgia, and she says, you know, the life of a librarian, is not the most exciting in the world, but it does have its piquant moments, such as the one I've experienced. My associate is a member of the moral majority. He doesn't read books, but he knows what he likes. <laughs> and so he said to me, a book, a request has come for a new book in the library. And I said, we don't carry pornographic literature. And so I asked him, what's the name of the book? And he said, I believe it's called Working Studs by Turkle. And that is when I knew I had a best seller.